real fun topic. Brother Stephen was picking at me from the sound booth a few minutes ago that everybody heard I was teaching again and doing part two of this lesson, and they didn't come back. But we have more than two in here now, so that's a big jump. We've more than doubled our attendance from a few minutes ago. So, But last time I taught, so two weeks ago, I guess it was, <clears throat> we dealt with the subject of prep preparation for persecution from John <coughs> chapter 16, as Jesus and his disciples are headed out to the Mount of Olives, where he will be um, betrayed, where he'll be arrested. He's getting them prepared for all of this, so he's giving them some final instructions here. And as they're walking along, there were four things that we looked at last time. See if I can get this. There we go. Okay. Now it's up and running. We talked about a common conflict. Jesus was telling the disciples what he had dealt with, his disciples were going to deal with. So there was something that they shared with Christ, and that was um, the conflict that they were going to be facing with the world, with the unbelieving world. Secondly, was a common confrontation. And we talked about how that the confrontation we were discussing was the fact that the things that Jesus taught, his words, the things that Jesus did, his works, and the word of God itself were the reasons for the confrontation as Jesus simply taught, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, um, blessed are the peacemakers. These teachings of Jesus that should have been bringing peace were actually confrontational to many in the religious world and therefore brought about his persecution. And he was saying, you're going to go out and you're going to teach and you're going to preach and you're going to do good works and you're going to have the same type of response. It is going to bring confrontation. So we talked about a common confrontation. Then we talked about a common companion. He talked about that we will have the comforter, the Holy Spirit, the disciples as they entered into persecution. They were going to have the Holy Spirit with them. And of course, throughout Jesus' ministry, the Holy Spirit was involved in his ministry, coming on him at his baptism, leading him into the wilderness, to temptation. Um, and we were going to have the Holy Spirit abiding in us as believers. And then we had that common confidence at the end of the last lesson, and that confidence was in the working of God, specifically the working of the Holy Spirit, as we could be confident, or specifically the disciples could be confident to share the gospel because the Holy Spirit was going to be convicting the lost world of sin and righteousness and judgment. It was not their responsibility to have to do those things. They just taught the truth. They taught Jesus. They preached Jesus and the Holy Spirit would take that and work in the hearts of men and women. And so that was the confidence they could stand on is that God was with them and going to be working. So today we're going to talk about part two, starting in verse uh, number 16. <clears throat> a little while and ye shall not see me. And again, a little while and ye shall see me because I go to the Father. Then said some of his disciples among themselves, What is this um, that he saith unto us? And notice that this is in, they break it down into three parts. A little while, and ye shall not see me. And again, a little while, and ye shall see me. And 
because I go to the Father. So there were three parts to this, and then they summed it up at the end. They said, therefore, what is this that he saith a little while? What is he talking about a little while? We cannot tell what he saith. The first part today is fearful questions. They had some fearful questions. What does he mean he's going away? What does he mean he's coming back or we're going to see him again? What does he mean what what does he mean when he says he's going to the Father? Now he had already addressed these things up in the upper room. When in chapter 14, he said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I what? I go to prepare a place for you. He's already told them where he's going. Um, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So he's talking about the fact he's going away to his father's house, his work of preparation once he gets there, and the fact that he's going to return and he's going to take his followers to heaven with him. And now they're walking just maybe a few hours later, maybe a couple, just a couple of hours later, they're walking along the way headed toward the Mount of Olives, and he makes a similar statement, except now he's just summing things up very simply I'm about to go away. You're not going to see me anymore. Then you're going to see me because I'm going to my father. And they're just really puzzled. They're really confused. And their big question is, what does he mean by a little while? So Jesus begins to respond to this. And here we have number two, his answers favorable answers. He gives some really, well, okay, some of this doesn't sound good, but in the long run, some really good answers. Now, Jesus knew that they were desirous to ask him <coughs> and said unto them, do ye inquire among yourselves of that I said a little while and ye shall not see me, and again a little while and ye shall see me? It's amazing that Jesus knew their hearts. Sometimes I think we forget that. Here we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And I think sometimes we forget the fact that he knows our thoughts. He knows our heart. And this was so beautifully illustrated here as the disciples are whispering, as the disciples are talking uh, probably even arguing among themselves. I'm sure Peter had an opinion on what they what Jesus was talking about. I mean, Peter always had an opinion about everything. But when it came down to it, Peter had to admit, I don't know what in the world Jesus is talking about. They were all confused. So Jesus knows what their discussion is. Jesus hears them talking. And it says in verse 20, Verily, verily, I say unto you, that ye shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice. And ye shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. Now look at the opposites here. The first thing I noticed about these words of Jesus was that in answering their question, he points out some opposites. He said, ye shall weep and lament. Now, personally, I think he's specifically talking about the crucifixion here. Some say he's talking about when he returned back to the Father at the ascension, 
and that it was going to be difficult for the disciples. Here's the final conclusion I came to as I've been studying this out. Both times were sorrowful for the disciples. Both times were difficult. The first time they're scared. The first time they hide for three days. The second time when Jesus returns back to the Father after 40 days after his resurrection, they're going to go out, they're going to preach the gospel, they're going to be persecuted. Some of them are going to be stoned. Some of them all, but as far as I know, all but John were executed, and they tried to kill John, but um, he wasn't that killable. Um, So finally, they put him on the Isle of Patmos. Um, Some say that John was actually boiled in oil in a Colosseum, and um, my dad always referred to John as the hard-boiled preacher because... He was hard-boiled. They boiled a guy, and he won't die, so we'll just put him off on the Isle of Patna so so he doesn't have anybody but prisoners and rats to talk to. Um, And if any of you have ever seen um, Dean Martin's John on the Isle of Patmos, that's actually what it does. He's portraying John. He's the only actor in the film, and he's portraying John on the Isle of Patmos, and he has the, uh, the rat that shares the cave with him, you know, and he names the rat, and anyway... That's pretty funny, but um, good picture of what he was going to go through. But there was going to be, what was there going to be? There was going to be weeping for the disciples. There was going to be lament. There's going to be mourning. But the world was going to rejoice. There was a rejoicing that took place when they were so happy that Jesus was finally dead. I mean, he'd been such a terrible person, right? Oh, so much unrest in the nation had been brought on by Jesus Christ. I'm speaking sarcastically if you can't hear that in my voice. But that's how they looked at it. That's how the mob looked at it when Jesus was crucified. They were thrilled to get rid of him. It was a time for rejoicing. For the disciples, it was a time of sorrow. When the disciples are persecuted, it would be a time of rejoicing. When the early Christians were um, persecuted under Nero and Rome, there was rejoicing as Christians were killed by the wild animals. There was rejoicing as they were burned at the stakes. There was partying as they were impelled on poles and lighting the dinner parties um, as they were, you know, dipped in some kind of flammable, I can't think of that, tar, wasn't it, that they were dipped in? Dipped in tar, stuck on poles, and then set on fire to light the parties. Literally, there was rejoicing. There was celebration for the world, but it was weeping. It was lament for God's people. Then he says, then he flips it around. He said, and ye shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall turn into joy. I think it's interesting there. He doesn't talk about the world anymore. He says, when that comes, oh, well, let's not discuss that. You're going to be joyful. There is going to be celebration on your part. Your sorrow is going to be turned into joy. What does the psalm say? Weeping endures for the night, but joy comes in the morning. He said, there's going to be a morning for you, and it's going to be a joyous morning. Then he gives an illustration of the truth that he's trying to explain here. He says, a woman, when she is in travail, hath sorrow, because her hour is come. My wife has told me before when she's in the midst of labor, and uh, well, not me, but you know, a nurse walks in at the hospital and says, Oh, is this your last? Are you going to have another one? 
Laura looks at me and she says, not anytime soon. I mean, come on. Why, why would a nurse, why in their right mind would they come in talking about having another child when a woman's in labor? I mean, the sorrow's bad. The pain is bad right now. You know, it's not like a movie where it just, boom, it happens and it's over. There is sorrow. If they put it on a movie, it would be so bad rated. Just the sorrow and pain part. But there is travail. There's sorrow because her hour is come. I mean, there's been some misery at the end, right? I mean, you know, nine months pregnant, you get miserable. I think. I don't know. I have never been that way. So, no, I know that you get miserable and you can't sleep good anymore. And then the hour comes. You know, you've been anticipating. I can't wait for it to get here. So it's over. Can't wait to get that baby. And all of a sudden, labor hits and the sorrow hits, the pain hits, the crying hits. But as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish for the joy that a man is born into the world. That baby gets there, and again, a nurse walks in, and Laura's holding the newborn, and, oh, man, are y'all going to have another one? Laura says, not right now. But she's so excited about this little one. Well, then what happens six months down the, la- down the way? This baby's getting so big. I can't wait till we have another one. Like, wait, what happened to the woman? Like, I purposely hadn't said a thing about having another child because, you know, I remembered what she said when she had it. Six months later, she just, that's not in the conversation anymore. Why? Because she's so excited to have that baby in her hands. It boils down to this. The joy of the baby is greater than the sorrow of the pain. The joy of the baby is greater than the sorrow of the pain. Now, in the day in which we live, it's quite frequently you say something like this. You say, but, oh, but, but I knew a woman that, but I knew. Um, it's like Laura was teaching a wordless book class at Smite a few years ago. And she quoted the verse from Isaiah where um, the Lord said, um, a woman will not forget her child. But if she forgets, but if. And um, Laura made the comment, she said, Laura made some comment about your mothers didn't forget you. Yeah, whose mother would forget their child? That's what it was. And one of the girls raised her hand. And she started talking, and I mean, it was a terrible situation with her mother. And then God said, but even if a mother were forget, I will not forget you. Now, what was the point? The point was a healthy mother with her natural God-given instinct, if you want to call it that, the, what God has built into a mother, a woman with those natural things is not going to forget about her child. I mean, you read about women who have put their child up for adoption and not see their child for years. 50 years later, they finally get to meet their child. And they say, there hasn't been one day that I haven't. I read a story about it the other day. And the woman told her daughter she had been an actress and hidden the fact that she was with child. And her daughter never knew who her mother was until she was older. And when she met her mother, she told her mother, she said, my favorite sitcom to watch on TV when I was a little girl 
was the show you played on. And the woman played a mother on the TV show. And she just loved watching this mom on TV. And then she finds out as an older woman, when her mother's very elderly, that that mother she watched on TV all the time was really her mother. And that mom, that actress, made the comment. She said, I have, there's not been one day gone by that I haven't thought of you. And it's the case with, with this. Jesus is talking about the natural condition of a woman is that not, even with a terrible birth, what happens? Oh, yeah, she may still have some pain scars. There may be some literal scars from that birth. But she is so excited and so happy to have her baby and to hold that child in her arms that the joy of that child far outweighs the pain and the sorrow. So let's look at this. Either way that you apply this scripture, whether you're applying it to those three days before his resurrection or the time period from which Jesus ascended to his return, the sorrow of the three days after Jesus' death was going to be far outweighed by the joy of the resurrection. Can you imagine being in that little group? There's the sorrow, there's the fear, but on resurrection day, there is enormous joy. And for the next 40 days, getting to spend time with Jesus on and off for them and getting to sit at his feet and hear his teaching and eat the food that he's prepared for them on the sea of, shores of the Sea of Galilee. What an amazing time of fellowship. Those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, just beautiful times with Jesus. That joy far outweighed the sorrow. Then we have the sorrow of the period between Jesus' ascension and second coming, persecution of Christians around the world that has taken place throughout history during this time period, but the joy of his return is going to far outweigh anything, any suffering that any Christian has gone through in this world. There is so much power in the return of Jesus Christ. And if we can keep our focus on that, keep our eyes on that, we'll be able to experience what it says in Hebrews chapter 12. Let's look over there. You ever wonder how Jesus could endure the pain of the cross? How could he endure that pain? How could he endure that suffering? Hebrews chapter 12 and verse number 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who far the what? The joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Keep in your mind the fact that Jesus endured the cross. He endured the beating, he endured the spitting, he endured the name calling, he endured the false accusations. Anything we're going to endure, he endured in some form. But yet for the joy that was set before him, he endured. And you and I can endure as well if we keep our minds on Christ, remembering that the joy of his return is going to be better than anything we go through in this life. As we talked about last time, in the day in which we live and the possibility of real, genuine, honest persecution in America in the near future, we can face anything if we keep our eyes on Jesus. We can face death if we keep our eyes on Jesus. 
I worry about my kids sometimes, but when I worry about my kids is when my eyes are not focused on Jesus. Because when I remember what he endured, it makes me reconsider how bad anything could be that I could endure. He endured it for the joy that was set before him. And you and I have a greater day coming, a wonderful time, eternity in heaven with God. We can endure this life. So we talked about fearful questions, favorable answers. That's a favorable answer. Oh yeah, things are going to be really bad for y'all, but it's all going to get good at the end. Like a mom holding her baby, you're going to be in my presence and it's going to be good. Then number three, familial relationships. These next few verses here have sometimes been confusing to me why they're even in this passage. But if we start reading in verse number um, uh, 22, actually, this is part of the last one, but let's read it. And ye now therefore have sorrow. They were sorry because Jesus was saying he was leaving. But I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. And in that day, here we go, in that day, when he's gone, or maybe when he comes back, but let's look at the context here. And in that day, ye shall ask me nothing. You're not going to be asking me questions. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Hitherto have ye asked nothing in my name. Ask, and ye shall receive, that your joy may be full. So look, he's talking about prayer now. Asking in his name. Why had the disciples never prayed to the Father before? Why is it that they weren't requesting, specifically requesting things from the Father? They had Jesus right there. But Jesus is going away. And here's the amazing thing, what I had never noticed before. Why are these verses stuck in here as Jesus is talking about going away and coming back and their joy being full, and then he gets onto the persecution thing again? Why is he talking about this? He's talking about this because he wanted his disciples to understand what their relationship was with the Father once he went away. He was going away, and they were going to have this close relationship with the Father, They could pray directly to the Father. They had never had to be in that position before. Jesus was there. They wanted to know something. They asked Jesus. They needed something. They asked Jesus. But Jesus had already taught them, give us this day our daily bread. Do you really think that the persecuted disciples were going to have abundance of money and food? By the time they're out preaching the gospel and being persecuted, they're not going to have the abundance of anything other than trouble. And so he's teaching them, give us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. He had taught them to address the Lord how? Our Father, which art in heaven. Now he says the time's coming where you're going to start praying like I taught you to. You're going to be addressing the Father. So he says, ask and ye shall receive that your joy may be full. We see in verse 26, Jesus' intercessory work. Look what he says in verse, actually rather verse 25. These things have I spoken unto you in Proverbs. 
But the time cometh when I shall no more speak unto you in Proverbs, but I shall show you plainly of the Father. Now you may ask with me, what is he talking about? He's about to leave. How is he going to have more time to show them plainly the Father? Well, in the last two chapters, what have we seen? Who was coming to permanently indwell them and teach them all things and to reveal to them Christ? It was going to be the work of the Holy Spirit he's talking about here. The Holy Spirit was coming to indwell them, and he would be working through the power of the Holy Spirit to teach them and to show them things were going to get real plain. When were things going to get plain? Well, he's already told them when the Holy Spirit comes, he's even going to show you things to come. They were going to end up with this book called The Apocalypse or The Revelation of Jesus Christ. Where were they going to get it? It was going to be Jesus would give it to them through the work of the Holy Spirit. And we saw last time earlier in this chapter that um, Jesus had explained that everything that the Father had was given to Jesus. And Jesus said, I'm going to give it to the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's going to give it to you. And at the end of the lesson, we looked at how that the disciples were going to write it down in Scripture. We were going to have the New Testament epistles. And we still have today what the Father gave the Son, and the Son gave the Spirit, and the Spirit gave the apostles, and the apostles have left for us. And he said things are going to get real plain after these things start happening. Verse 25, at that day, sorry, 26, at that day, ye shall ask in my name to pray in his name. And I say unto you that I will pray the Father for you. So here we see the great intercessory work of Jesus Christ. He was going to be sitting at the right hand of the Father. He was going to be making requests for us. So as we pray, we have the Son sitting there, yes, Father, answer his request. Yes, that is your child. Answer their request. We find in Romans chapter 8, let's flip over there, Romans 8, 34. Romans chapter 8 and verse 34. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again. Who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us? And 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. And verse 5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So Jesus was going to ascend back to the Father. He was going to be sitting at his right hand. And when we pray, he's making intercession for us. What's so powerful is, we've already studied a few weeks ago, we talked about the Holy Spirit's work in prayer. The Holy Spirit makes intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. When we don't know how to pray, the Holy Spirit prays for us. So what an awesome thing. We have the Holy Spirit who's helping us pray, helping us know how to pray, interceding for us. We have Jesus at the right hand of the Father who's interceding for us. What an unbelievable thing. So he says, you start addressing the Father directly. You start talking to the Father. What a powerful thing that you and I can go directly to the Father. 
I liked what John Phillips said about this passage. He said in the future, talking about once the Holy Spirit had come and Jesus had ascended back to the Father, in the future, the Lord's people will be able to make their petitions directly to the Father. The fact that the Lord was going back to the Father effected this change. The return of Christ to the Father restored completely the connection broken by the sin of Adam. So this was restored. What was lost in the fall is restored. And you and I can pray. He says here, ask anything in his name. And I want to mention while we're here that as we discussed before when we talked about the Holy Spirit in prayer, is in his name, praying in his name had to do with his will. Being in alignment with his will, according to his character, we're praying as the representative of Jesus Christ. Isn't that funny? Praying in the name of is praying as a representative of Jesus Christ. I'm only asking what he would ask. You know, I go out and pray for a million bucks so I can build a mansion. It's probably not what Jesus would ask. You know, he has mansions in his father's house, not here on earth. That's not praying in accordance to his will or his name. But I think it's funny that we pray as representatives of Jesus Christ, and he's in heaven as our representative, asking the Father, please do what she said. Please do what he said. Talk about teamwork. And that's why our prayer needs to be in line with his will. Whatever it is we're praying about, it needs to be in line with his will. And then if you look in verse 27, if you look in verse 27, we see the love of this family that we're in now that we're saved. At that day, ye shall ask, I'm sorry, verse 27, I'm at the wrong verse. For the Father himself loveth you. What an awesome thing. We have a heavenly Father that loves us. Now, why does he love us? First of all, we know John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He loves every human being and offered his son to be the sacrifice for our sins. But he's talking about a close family relationship right here because he said, for the father himself loveth you because, why? Ye have loved me. We see here what faith in Jesus Christ produces. It births us into the family of God. It makes us a child of God, a child of the King. We're going to sing that hymn this morning, a child of the King. It makes us a part of his family. Because ye have loved me and have believed that I came out from God. So we see the love of this family relationship. (coughs) And then look what he says. I came forth from the Father, and am come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. Look at all the doctrine that is crammed into this little verse. I came forth from the Father. Here we see the virgin birth. He was born of a virgin, and that could only be possible because God was his Father, and came into the world. Here's his incarnation. He put on human flesh, God became man and dwelt among us. Again, I leave the world. Here we have his death in the first place, but then I think he's talking about his ascension here specifically and because of the context of the prayer and everything. Again, I leave the world, his ascension, and go to 
the Father. Here's his intercession sitting at the right hand of the Father. And he's saying, I, I am, the Father loves you because you believe me. You love me. You believe that I came from God. You believe that I was sent by him. You believe they were believing these foundational doctrines about Christ. And then he gives them a little more doctrine here, a little more truth. Such a powerful thing. Look at Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. I want us to see again the, the power of Christ's position today. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. But hath in due times manifested his word. Uh, sorry, I'm at the wrong place. He, oh, I flipped over to Titus. Hebrews, that's Philemon. My pages keep sticking together. There we go. Hebrews 1 and verse number, what did I say? 3 who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he um, had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Look at verse number 10, sorry, chapter 10 and verse number 12. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. And in chapter 12 and verse 2, we've already looked at it toward the end of the verse. He said, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. So we have Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father. Number four, we have their fragile faith. If you look in verse 29, his disciples said unto him, lo, now speakest thou plainly and speakest no proverb. We're, we're understanding what you're saying. Now are we sure that thou knowest all things and needest not that any man should ask thee. By this, look here, what's the theme of the Gospel of John? That ye might, what? Believe. They said, by this, we, what? Believe that thou camest forth from God. So they make this great confession. We really believe, but it was a fragile faith. Jesus answered them, do ye now believe? Do you really believe? Now, I don't think he's doubting their faith, but he understands how fragile it is. He understands that he, he knows what's about to happen. Hi, one author said it this way. He said he could already hear the crowd in the street. He knew that Judas was on his way to the Mount of Olives. He could hear the footsteps of the soldiers. And he knew, as that author said, that within the hour he was going to be arrested and they would all be running. I'm not sure it was that soon, but it was about to happen. And Jesus knew it. So he questions them, do ye now believe? Really? Do you really believe? Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come. And that's the reason why the author would say within the hour, because he said the hour's come. The time has come that ye that, sorry, that ye shall be scattered every man to his own and shall leave me alone. You're going to run. You're going to hide you're going to head back home, head back to your jobs, whatever it was that they had been doing before. And he said, you're going to run and you're going to try to go back to normal life. 
He said, you're going to desert me. You're going to leave me alone. But then he says, and yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. As he's preparing them to be persecuted, he gives them this great truth. You're all going to leave me, but I'm not really alone. Now, the day was going to come that they were going to be persecuted and they would remember what he had said. The Holy Spirit, remember he had the reminding ministry? The Holy Spirit was going to be reminding them of things that Jesus had said and Jesus had done, and they would remember that when we left Jesus, he wasn't alone. When we forsook him, he wasn't alone. And when all of their friends would forsake them, when they were alone on a mission field somewhere and everybody else was forsaking them and they were one of the disciples being nailed to the ground to die out in the elements, being crucified upside down, whatever it was, beheaded, whatever it was that each one faced, they could have confidence knowing the Father was with them. What a powerful truth. And then we want to conclude this morning with the final word. Jesus gives the final word on the matter before he starts praying. Look what he says in verse 33. These things have I spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In me you might have peace. He just told them that they're all going to forsake him. Oh, yay, isn't this happy? And now he says, oh, but you're going to have peace. I mean, can you imagine the disciples? We just found out. We just told Jesus we believed in him, and he questions our faith. And then he has to turn around and tell us we're going to forsake him. And now he says that we're going to have peace. How can these things really add up? One pastor said it this way. G. Campbell Morgan said, There's no peace so fine to the human soul as the sense of realizing that he knows me, even the worst that is in me. And his point was, the Jesus knew the disciples were going to forsake Jesus. And yet he knew them, he loved them, and he tells them, you're going to experience peace. You're going to have my peace. These things have I spoken unto you that in me, that their only peace was going to come in him, that in me you might have peace. Running back to their own homes, running back to their old jobs was not going to bring peace. Their only peace was when they were fully focused on Jesus Christ. In him was where their peace was going to come. Then he says, in the world ye shall have tribulation. There is going to be trouble. There are going to be trials. There are going to be problems. There will be tribulation. But be of good cheer. Now here he calls for cheer. He calls for happiness. You're going to have problems. You're all going to get killed. It's going to be terrible, but be happy about it. Why? You know, I mean, that's not my first response when bad things happen. We were getting ready to go to Smite. We'd gone over to my parents. And um, Saturday night, the kids go to bed. We're getting into bed about 1 o'clock in the morning or something, knowing that we're only going to get about four hours of sleep every night at Smite. Discouraged that we're starting the week on not enough sleep. And one of the kids comes knocking at the door. He's sick. So we were up with him the next few hours, sick. Well, that night I was starting to get discouraged. One of the other kids wasn't feeling well. Well, by now, mom and I aren't feeling too hot after what we've seen and cleaned and, you know, all that stuff. And I'm starting to get discouraged. And Laura said, honey, I really think this is a satanic attack. I don't even think this kid has a virus. 
I think we're just under attack because of what's going to happen this week. Well, that brought a little bit of encouragement. You know, there's going to be joy this week because we've had misery all night. Next day, still wasn't feeling well. But my first thing wasn't to be happy about it. Now, my wife, she has to remind me sometimes, oh, no, honey, this is the bad before the good. Oh, yeah, Satan's trying to attack. He's trying to stop us. He's trying to discourage us. He's trying to keep us from going this week. He's trying to keep us from doing what we need to do. She's the one reminding me constantly, be of good cheer. We can be happy about this. Here she is pregnant and cleaning a puke, you know. We can be happy about this. Oh, yay, is how I'm thinking. She's remembering the be of good cheer. Now, why be of good cheer? He says, I have overcome the world. Not I will overcome the world. This is not a future tense. This is, he's not saying I am overcoming the world. This is past tense, fully finished, fully completed. The, the mood he uses here is a statement of fact that is not to be discussed. I mean, it's just, it's as sure as the sky is blue, he has overcome. It's done. There's, nothing, there's no discussion about it. Or you could say he hasn't gone to the cross yet and it's already in the bag. I've overcome. It's who he is. That's who our Lord and Savior is. He is the overcomer. He is the victor. And he said, you can be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. Here he was about to be crucified. And he says, oh, I'm already an overcomer. Oh, yeah, it's already over. But he's not to the cross yet. And sometimes we get to Easter and people start talking about how the world rejoiced and this party that went on in heaven for three days and three nights and Satan thought he had done such a good job. I don't know. He's got a smashed in head. I can't figure out how, Jesus was ex how Satan was excited about the crucifixion once it happened. Because on the cross, he bruised Christ's heel. But Christ crushed his head. So I'm not sure he was partying. He was in the ER that night, not at the bar. But anyway, I, I, I never will fully understand how people think Satan got so excited for three days and three nights, and on resurrection morning, he was in wailing and anguish because of the resurrection. He thought the crucifixion was a good idea until it happened. And then when Jesus was crucified, it was over. That was victor right there. I mean, on the cross, he's reaching down and crushing the serpent's head. And then resurrection morning comes, and they can't, the grave can't keep him. It, death can't hold him. He is alive. Then 40 days later, he ascends back to the Father. And Satan is just smart enough to think that one day he can take over everything. And there's going to be an Antichrist kingdom and he's going to rule the world. I mean, he's got really great ambition. But Christ has already overcome why do I mention all this? Because if persecution comes to us, we can remember that Christ has already overcome. And we can live as overcomers as well. I mean, if you study Revelation, you see in Revelation, they overcame him. In Revelation 6, 2, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. 1 John 2, 13, 2, 14, 4, 4. Five, four through five, we find that we as Christians can be overcomers because Christ has overcome. So when persecution came to the disciples, they could be joyful because 
I mean, here they are in prison and they're getting beaten. And it can be comical to them that these people think they're going to stop the spread of the gospel. It can be comical to them, we're going to kill you to punish you. They said, I get to go to heaven. That's, that's actually kind of comical that, you know, what you do to hurt me is actually going to bring the most pleasure I've ever had. It's a change of perspective when we realize we serve a Savior who has already overcome. We serve a Savior that before he even got to the cross said, I have overcome the world. What a powerful thing. And this week, as I was finalizing this last night, actually, I um, read John MacArthur's notes on this passage, and he said the fundamental ground for endurance in persecution is the victory of Jesus over the world. You and I can endure persecution. Why? Because Jesus has overcome the world. So while there may be a mob out there that wants to annihilate Christianity, while there's a mob who wants to kill Christians and do away with any resemblance of Christianity, we can remember that they are not the overcomers. We have read the last chapter. We know that our Savior will reign and rule as King of kings and Lord of lords. He has already overcome. He is victor. And no matter what the future holds, you and I can be confident that we serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he's living, whatever men may say. He is the overcomer, and you and I serve him. Lord, we thank you that you are the overcomer. We thank you that no trial, no sorrow, no heartache, nothing in this life, can overtake us so to the point that we can't have joy in you. Lord, I thank you that you overcame. I thank you that it is your very nature, that you are victor. And we look forward to the day that you rule and reign on this earth as King of kings and Lord of lords. Lord, we thank you that we have hope that goes beyond this country, beyond our Constitution, beyond any other law or document in our nation that may be on the verge of extinction. We thank you that we have hope in you, that we have confidence in you, and that we do serve a risen Savior. Lord, I pray that you would help us to keep our eyes on you, keep our focus on you. Lord, because in you, we have peace no matter what comes. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to remember these truths and just seal them to our heart. Lord, I pray that you would be with us in the remainder of the services this morning. Bless Brother Richie as he preaches, Lord. Just pray that you would hide him behind the cross. And Lord, that um, as he proclaims your word, Lord, that we will have ears to hear and your Holy Spirit will convict us of sin and um, make change in our heart. Thank you, Lord, for your blessings. In Christ's name we pray, amen.